6, uh, beginning at verse uh, number 1. <clears throat> let, me, I tell you, let me just uh, read the passage to you, then we'll come back and make some comments on it. All right, and then we'll, we'll dig in. So Hebrews chapter 6, let's begin at verse number 1. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to and open shame. Now, there are a lot of people who point to this passage as, as one of their key passages for biblical evidence um, that a person can be born again and then lose their salvation uh, and be just as bound for an eternity in hell uh, as they were prior to them ever calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. Now, I know these are controversial things, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but we need the truth on this. We need, we need to understand these things. And, and so again, I've referenced some of the previous classes that are leading up to this one. But we said that if the Bible seems to say uh, two different things, um, then either the Bible contradicts itself or there's an explanation. And, of course, we know that Father God is not the author of confusion and He doesn't contradict Himself, so there always has to be an explanation. Now, before we ever uh, looked at this passage tonight and then the one we looked at last week out of 1 Corinthians 6, another one that people point to, that again, is evidence, we, we went through 12 irrefutable truths. In other words, things that the Bible absolutely says in multiple places uh, concerning your salvation, concerning the permanence of it, the, the eternal nature of it. Um, and so again, uh, you know, people argue one side or the other, uh, you know, uh, of this position uh, because, again, it, it seems like that, that the Bible presents both sides of it. In, in other words, it seems like the Bible says you absolutely cannot lose your salvation, and it also seems like the Bible says you absolutely can, right? So I told you last week that I started out on the opposite side of this. In other words, I started out on the, on the side believing you could lose your salvation, and more I searched the Scriptures to try to reinforce my argument, um, it just started becoming abundantly clear to me that, that I was actually wrong, um, and, and that there's far more in the Word of God that points to the eternal nature of, of your salvation uh, than would ever seem to say... Uh, you know, that it's, that it's the opposite, that you, that you can actually lose it. Now, people ask me all the time, so you're saying once saved, always saved, Pastor Mark. And, um, I mean, I don't mind saying that. I'll say it. If, if you, watch me. Once saved, always saved. Okay, so I don't have no problem saying that at all. But it's really, that doesn't communicate it. Because remember, we spent weeks explaining that your salvation is a result of a new birth. Um, you were born from death. You were, you were born from you know, this, this place uh, that only Jesus, He was the firstborn from the dead. And, and we've been born a second time of a seed that cannot be corrupted. He became the author of eternal salvation. He was perfected through the things that He suffered. 
and, and, and provided eternal redemption. Again, see, I'm reviewing things. I love to talk about those things. But, but you know, again, I believe the more accurate way to say it is once born, always born. Once born, always born. Now, with that said, I want us to go into Hebrews 6 because, again, you know, right there on the screen, Pastor Mark, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, it's impossible, um, you know, because they've crucified Jesus again, so forth and so on. Well, amen. I believe that these are some of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And I want to take some time tonight to just go through them line upon line and help you. Now, listen, I, I keep telling you, you, you don't have to agree with me. Just keep an open heart and mind and let the Holy Spirit, He's your teacher. Amen, not me. He's your teacher, all right? Now, the first thing that's going to help you, the first thing that's going to help you is, is we need to ask ourselves a very important question. To whom is Hebrews written, right? So, you have the, in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, then you have the Acts of the Apostles that we call the Book of Acts. Um, and then the, re- the remainder of the Bible is uh, letters. And with the exception of Hebrews, all the other letters, epistles, Ephesians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, what have you, all of those are letters written either to the church or to a born-again individual. Um, and so if you, the, these letters begin, to the church at Ephesus. You know, They're specifically written with the assumption that the, the reader has already been born again. Again, with one exception. The, the letter written to the Hebrews, Hebrews, by the way, uh, is, is not a, a, a cool name for a church coffee shop, all right? The Hebrew people are Jewish people. So the letter to the Hebrews is an open letter written to the Hebrew people, Jewish people, and there are parts in that letter that you know, are to Jewish people who have been born again. But the main emphasis of the letter is addressing Jewish people in the first century who would have experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus but have not for whatever reason gotten around to investing faith in Him and accepting Him for themselves as their Messiah. So if you make the assumption that everyone Hebrews is written to has already been born again, you're going to be very confused. But if you'll, if you'll take that one, and that, that truth, when the Lord revealed that part to me right there, that, that helped not only open up some difficult passages in Hebrews, but it helped open up the whole book. And, and so you see how the writer of Hebrews is, is systematically addressing first century Jews and, and showing them how Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So let me, let me just give you an example. One of the hang-ups that, that, that these folks had was the Messiah was to be the great and eternal high priest. And in their understanding, all priests came from the tribe of Levi. That's where we get the Levitical priesthood. Well, Jesus wasn't born from the tribe of Levi. He was the, the line from the tribe of Judah. And so that was a hang-up for a lot of people. There's no way he could be the Messiah because as a priest he had to descend from Levi. And so again, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, deals with that. He addresses that. He explains that the original priesthood was Melchizedek 
and that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of Levi. So obviously, born-again believers, we can learn from this, but you have to understand, again, how he's systematically going through these things. He addresses angels and, and so forth and so forth. Now, this brings us to this passage here in Hebrews chapter 6. Keeping in mind that the, reader, the writer is making an effort to reach Hebrew people who experience the earthly ministry of Jesus. Um, maybe they've heard of Jesus. Think, think about this for a moment. The Bible says that, that we only have a small sample of the miracles Jesus performed while he was on this earth as a man. And John said that if every miracle and the details of those miracles was recorded, that there wouldn't be room enough to contain the volumes. That means in, in, instead of you know, a couple of dozen people that we read about in the Bible that Jesus, in the you know, Gospels that Jesus healed, you're talking about tens of thousands of people, right? So the, remember too, let me throw this in here. Uh, as many people as follow Jesus and so forth and so on, only 120 of them were willing to get a babysitter and take off work and go to the upper room when it was all said and done, right? Um, so there's a whole bunch of people who had heard him teach, a whole bunch of people who had, had eaten food, you know, that he had supernaturally, miraculously multiplied. A whole lot of people, a whole lot of moms and dads, he healed their babies. A whole lot of moms and dads cast devil out of their, you know, uh, you know crazy uncle and that, and that kind of stuff, right? And, and so now the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, listen, um, just because you experienced his ministry, and, and your heart was turned towards Him, uh, you've got to call upon Him and receive Him as your Savior. Now, let's go, let's go to it. Hebrews chapter 6, let's begin verse number 1. Before we get to those other things, you, you've got to see the context of it. So he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. We'll deal with the uh, last part of this verse in just a moment, but we've, we've got to capture the tone and the essence and the, and the perspective of this section of Scripture, uh, or we'll never understand uh, what it's actually saying and, and who it's addressing, all right? So when he says here, um, leaving... And let us go on. Do you see that? So he says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So before we look at what the elementary principles of Christ means, and before we deal with let us go on to perfection, I want us, and, and again, we've got to get these, these aspects of this nailed down in order for the entire passage to come alive and be unlocked for us. So I'm going to say it a couple of times. Leaving, let us go on. Leaving, let us go on. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, and by the way, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Uh, many people say uh, Paul. Some people say Barnabas. Some people say Priscilla. It was actually a female writer, um, and, and that's why the name was left off of it. But um, Brother Hagen, whom I have tremendous respect, respect for, he said Paul wrote Hebrews. Somebody asked him, how do you know? He said, I asked the Lord, and he told me. So, amen. So, uh, praise God. Um, but when I say the writer of Hebrews, we know ultimately the Holy Spirit inspired um, uh, th these words, right? So the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, is, is emphasizing 
that we've got to leave one thing and go on to another thing. And, and these words, leaving and let us go on, again, two key phrases that set the tone for unraveling the entire passage. So this, this word leaving, it means to put or place plus offer away. It literally means to abandon. Now, for years, for years, I incorrectly understood leaving let us go on to indicate the idea of progressing beyond basic things. Okay? Now, in one sense, you can make that case, but that's not the language that's used here. Okay? Um, let, let, me, let me try to explain to you what I mean by this. When, when he says, uh, uses this word leaving, um, expositors, uh, the expositors Greek Testament translates it, let us abandon, right? Um, Alfred translates it, leaving as behind and done with in order to go on to another thing, all right? Now, I think, uh, what a lot of people, when they, when they really start considering these words in the passage, they have this idea that goes something like this. All right, you learned how to count. Now let's go on to addition. And now you've learned how to add. Let's go on to uh, multiplication. And now you've learned multiplication. Let's go on to fractions. And so we have this idea that he's talking about something that's progressive in nature. But notice, it's, it's not, that's not what he's saying. Because if, if you understand it that way, right, you don't, uh, you don't abandon the numbers. You carry them with you to, to addition. And then you carry addition with you to multiplication. Then you carry multiplication with you to fractions. He's saying cut it loose. He's saying abandon it, walk away from it, put it off, put it away. Okay? So... Um, think of it this way. It would be more like, if we're, if we're going to use the math example, it would be like me putting away my math book and taking out my English book. Com a complete change, a complete shift from one thing to another. All right? So, um, also we see without digging into this uh, and, 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 and you know, getting too tedious with it, the Greek grammar and sentence structure... Um, is such as to communicate a once and for all action in the form of a command. So he's saying we need to abandon once and for all. And it's, and it's not just a suggestion. He is commanding them to put something off, to, 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 to put it away from them so that they are able to then go on to something else. In other words, if we look at it backwards... He's saying, as long as you hold on to this, you are unable to lay hold of that. In order to lay hold of that, you must turn loose of this. This is You've got you've to put away the math book and get out the English book if you're going to go from doing math to doing English. Okay? So, <sighs> that brings us into this phrase, let us go on. Let us go on. So what were the Hebrews being commanded to abandon once and for all? And what were they being commanded to pick up, embrace, 
and continue with. Right? Now, don't suck all the oxygen out of the room. Let me explain. They were being told to abandon the elementary principles of Christ, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, and they were being commanded to do that so that they could go on to perfection. Now, we've been using that word perfection a lot on Sunday mornings. That word perfection means completeness, okay? Wholeness, right? So he's saying you've got to abandon the elementary principles of Christ, abandon them, turn loose of them, so that you can lay hold of the perfection, all right? Now, praise God. Now, this does not, let me make sure. I'm going to explain this to you, but let me go ahead. I jumped ahead of myself. I want to make sure for some of you, you know, turn off Facebook and go to NCIS or something, all right? This does not, capital N, capital O, capital T, this does not mean the basic principles Jesus came to teach us, but it's referring to the initial and earliest things that began to introduce and reveal Him to us. Right? Now, for a first century Jew, the elementary principles of Christ, when they heard that, what they would have heard when that was spoken to them in their language, in this sentence structure, using this grammar, what they would have heard was they need to abandon the first beginning or earliest things that pointed them to Him. The first, the beginning, or the earliest things that would have pointed them in the direction of the Messiah. Right? So... What would those things have been? Those things would have been the types and the shadows and the practices of the Old Testament. They would have been things like animal sacrifices, right? Because are animal sacrifices not pointing us to the Messiah, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? The, the one who would one day come, right, and not, not provide a sacrifice that would cover over sin, but would provide a sacrifice that would take it away. So when he says that you have to abandon the elementary principles of Christ, he's, he's not saying that, you know, chunk overboard the basic principles Jesus taught us. He's saying to them these elementary, rudimentary principles, the, the earliest things that they ever heard, the earliest things that they ever experienced that pointed them to Him. So again, if you understand and are a student of the book of Hebrews, you know that there were so many people who experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus but were extremely reluctant to turn loose of the Old Testament traditions and rituals. They were very reluctant to turn their back on what had been their family heritage, what had been their family tradition, and, and, and to embrace this new and living way that Jesus introduced to them. So do you see, if you understand that bigger picture of the book of Hebrews, you see how Hebrews 6 fits into there. Remember the first word that we read in the chapter was therefore, in light of what we're talking about, the things that, that uh, are, are pertaining to and, and pointing to Jesus 
in the Old Testament, all of those things are types and shadows. All of those things simply laid a foundation, right, for the perfection of those things, the completion of those things that Jesus uh, became and now is for each one of us. Oh, praise God, Holy Spirit, thank you for helping me. Uh, th- th- I'm telling you, this is, a, this is kind of something big for us um, to take on tonight. We're going to take it on, praise God. We've still got some time. All right, now, let, let's do this. Let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to perfection. He's saying you've got to abandon the things that initially introduced you to the concept of Messiah, right? Those were types and shadows. You don't cling to the types and the shadows when the one the types and shadows point to has already come. Amen. He says you've got you to abandon the traditions and the rituals and those, those Old Testament practices. There's no need to go and cut the throat of one of your lambs any longer. The Lamb has come. The, the One who provided complete covering and removal of your sin, right, has come. So we've got to, we've got to abandon one to lay hold of the other. Now, this word perfection, I'm going to do this really fast, okay? I, 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 could, take, I could take two weeks, amen, to, to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this really fast, but I want to show you Again, this word perfect or perfection is, um, is used throughout the book of Hebrews. So we see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We've been talking about this verse last few Sunday mornings. Perfect through sufferings for both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, all from the same uh, source for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, meaning those who came from the same womb. All right. So Jesus was made perfect. His salvation was made perfect through the things that He suffered as our substitute. Then we go to chapter 5, verse 9. And having been perfected, again speaking of Jesus, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So there's that word, perfect, complete. Again, now we go to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore... If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Again, a lot we could talk about here, but the key thing that he's saying is that if perfection were through the priesthood, um, then there's no need for Jesus to come. But we know that perfection did not come through that priesthood, but perfection did come through the priesthood of Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So notice the law made nothing perfect. The law, again, was something in the Old Testament that not only introduced us to the concept of a Messiah, but was meant to provide evidence that we could never make ourselves right by our own efforts. Chapter 7, verse 28, For the law, the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Notice the theme here. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make Him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, 
concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So again, notice that these things uh, could not make the person who performed them, these Old Testament uh, rituals and practices and ceremonial washings and all these other things, they could not make the person perfect. Let's go chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. There's the word again, right? So when he's saying going on to perfection, going on to completeness, at the same time he tells us that in chapter 6 of Hebrews, throughout the Word of God, he's showing us that the Old Testament system could never make us perfect, could never make us complete, but the captain of our salvation has provided perfect uh, salvation for us, complete salvation for us, so forth and so on. Amen. All right, let me, one more, a few more, 10 and 12. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So notice when he says, let us go on to perfection, he's talking about those who've been born again, who are now participating in this, uh, this, this progressive uh, developing and growing up into Jesus. But notice he says that those who've been born again have been perfected forever. Turn loose the old, embrace the new, let us go on to perfection. One more, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect. Alright? Wow. Alright, now. This is what he means when he says, not laying again the foundation. All of these things, the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament sacrifices, the law, the ceremonial washings, all of these practices and rituals, right, were laying the foundation, pointing in the direction of, introducing us to the concept of these things, but Jesus came as not um, a type and a shadow, but once again, as the fulfillment and the completeness the perfection of these things. So the Old Testament practices, types, and shadows provide the foundation upon which the New Testament fulfillment and completeness, perfection of these things rest. All right? Am I going too fast? I'm going pretty fast. All right. Now, let's break some of this down. Notice that he says one of those foundations that, that we don't need to lay again is the repentance from dead works. Okay? Repentance from dead works. And you say, well, what, what, what's wrong with that? The, the New Testament doesn't teach repentance from dead works. It teaches repentance towards God. He's not just saying to, to change your, your mind and turn away from dead works. The New Testament is turn towards God. Okay? How about this? It, the Old Testament, he, he says this concept of faith towards God. You say, well, what's wrong with that, Pastor Mark? There's nothing wrong with that, but the New Testament offers us a better opportunity not to just have faith towards God, but to have faith in the completed work of Jesus. Right? There's something much more specific that has, has, has produced something in you. Now, the Old Testament, notice he says, not laying again the foundation of the doctrines of baptisms. 
Now, let me, full disclosure, okay? I have in the past, on multiple occasions, taught from these verses, called it, called it Foundation Series. It's kind of low-hanging fruit, makes for great PowerPoint presentations, right? And we just kind of go through these things systematically. You can teach on things like repentance. You can teach on things like baptism, right? You, it, 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 it's good stuff, it, faith, faith towards God. I mean, you, you can do sermon series after sermon series after sermon series on these things. I'm not saying that that's wrong, because certainly all of these things had their place in the Old Testament, but they have a new and better place in the New Testament. What he's telling them here in Hebrews 6 is you've got to move from just simply having repentance from dead works to repentance towards God. All right? You still with me? So the Old Testament doctrine of baptism. See, we, we tend, okay, man, let's, let's go with that. Let's talk about water baptism. Let's talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know the Bible talks about the baptism of Moses? <laughs> what is that, right? So again, there are all kinds of ceremonial washings. There are all kinds of things associated with the Old Testament and, 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 and things that, you know, if someone was sick and got better and the priest uh, confirmed it and they had to go through this, this ritualistic washing with water. Again, all of that is pointing to the day when we can be washed with the water of the Word, where we can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So the doctrine of baptisms, how about what Hebrews reveals to us? That goes deeper than something being washed from us outwardly. It talks about the blood of Jesus cleansing our conscience from dead works. Wow. My goodness. Let me give you a couple of verses. Let me give you one verse on that. Titus 3 and 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This, this is much better even than the pool of Bethesda. This is much, much, you know, when the angel would trouble the water and the first one in got healed. Right? There were, all of that was pointing to Jesus, the living water, right, who bring healing and, and refreshing. Now, laying on of hands. Well, praise God. See, we automatically think, you know, James... Any sick among you, call for the elders of church, anoint him with oil, lay hands on him, prayer of faith to save the sick. Absolutely. But see, what we don't realize is like all kinds of laying on of hands took place under the old covenant. Um, in Leviticus, we see that they would put the hand, they would lay their hands on the head of the burnt offering. Um, and it's, it, it, it was symbolic. They put the hands on the head of the scapegoat. Right? So, again, laying on of hands in that respect, was pointing to Jesus being crucified, buried, and raised, and ascended, and our being crucified, buried, raised, and ascended with Him. Old Testament speaks of the resurrection of the dead. There were people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're not just raised from the dead, but we're born from the dead. Old Testament speaks of eternal judgment. The New Testament, aren't you glad, speaks of a better thing. The New Testament reveals that Jesus was judged and punished as our substitute. Therefore, those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Wow. All right. Let's press on. Because this is the part, I think, where most people are confused. But if you understand that first part, you understand who he's addressing here. You understand who he's talking to here. He's talking to people who experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus, but are still holding on to those Old Testament practices and rituals, and he's saying you've got to turn that loose. You've got to, you've got to abandon that and, so that you can go on to the completeness and the fulfillment of those things which is in Christ. All right, now, 
Thank you, Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. It says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. So this is the part that people point to and they say, see, there's biblical evidence, Pastor Mark, that you can lose your salvation. Well, again, what about the 12 irrefutable things that say you can't, right? So maybe we're not understanding this passage, right, in, in the way that it was given to us. So, let's break it down. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. It's impossible not because of some shortcoming of the grace of God, but it's impossible because of the condition of their individual hearts. See, we don't, we don't think of it that way. We, we try to put this off on God. We don't realize that it's impossible for them, right? In, in other words, what would it have taken? I mean, some of them saw Him raised from the dead. Some of them saw Lazarus come bouncing out of the tomb. Need I remind you, Judas Iscariot was with Jesus for three years and never repented. Right? So he's saying it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Once enlightened here doesn't mean born again. Once enlightened means the truth was clearly revealed to them by the Holy Spirit in such a way that it did not need to be repeated or clarified any further. There was, there was no mistaking what they heard. There was no mistaking what they saw. There was no mistaking what they experienced. And yet, and yet, they have not turned to Jesus. Okay? Now, tasted the heavenly gift. I want you to think for a moment. Do you, you remember, because there's a lot of parallels to this group of people, the ones that God brought out of Egypt, but they, in the book of Hebrews, He talks a lot about the ones who came out of Egypt, but never made it into the promised land, right? And remember, they tasted the promised land, right? I mean, they brought the fruit and the produce and the grapes back from the promised land. They tasted of that promised land, but they did not use the faith that God gave them to actually go and take possession of that promised land. So when he says they tasted the heavenly gift like the spies, they tasted the fruit that Jesus brought from heaven and the kingdom of God to this earth. But again, like the spies, they turned back when it was time to cross over. Now, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. We look at a, at a word from the original Greek, partake means to have an equal share in. That's not what this word means. It does not mean to have an equal share in, um, as in 2 Peter, but it means to participate together with. I think it would be much better translated rub shoulders with. Because remember, everything that Jesus did, He did as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. So they didn't just encounter Jesus. They didn't just experience Jesus. They experienced the work of the Holy Spirit resting upon Jesus, ministering and, and, and doing the things that He did while on this earth. 
right? And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember, Jesus said, the works that I do, you'll do also. He, he, every miracle, we've talked about this in great length and detail in our discipleship classes, right? Jesus was not uh, of the Old Testament uh, model of a prophet. He, he came as one empowered by the Holy Spirit in right standing with God. And everything He did, He did by the authority, by the, by the resources, and, and, and by the kingdom realm of His Father, by the kingdom, right? So when it's tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, in other words, they tasted of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing to this earth and, and was desiring to give to them, right? So he says that if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, right? So what does this mean? Fall away, this expression is used one time in the New Testament, and it's right here in Hebrews chapter 6. And fall away literally means to deviate from the right path, to be traveling on a path and to take a turn and go a different direction. It could also mean or imply to wander. Okay? So again, I'm just I'm trying to show you how if you understand the audience that this is written to and you and you pull it over it as a template, it's 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 such a perfect and, and, and beautiful match. Now, remember, Jesus came with His disciples preaching repentance. What does repentance mean? Repentance means a turning of the heart, a turning away from, of, from one thing and turning towards another. Again, we read repentance and we think these folks got born again. It just simply means that Jesus caught their attention. It means that their hearts were turned towards Him, but not necessarily that they received Him as their Messiah. And so when he says that it's impossible, should they fall away, should they deviate from this path to renew them again to repentance, he's saying, look, Jesus Himself, the twelve holy apostles, all that they witnessed, it turned their hearts, but it wasn't enough for them to accept Him as Messiah, right? Now He's in heaven, they've lived their lives now many, many years beyond this, their hearts are hardened. I like, I like to say it this way, and I heard somebody quote me on this the other day. I don't know if they remember they heard it from me or, or, or what have you, but again, it's okay. But I like to say it this way. He's, the writer of Hebrews by the Holy Spirit is saying, look, if you don't get on this bus, there's not another bus coming. If you don't accept this Messiah, there's not another Messiah coming. If you reject Him, it's impossible for you to be saved. Now, not to... Uh, mess up one of the hammer points of a lot of religiously minded sermons but let's deal with this last phrase here and we'll put a bow on this for tonight all right since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame this part for themselves again, in the, in the original language, would be better understood, and we would say it more like this, we would say, as far as I'm concerned. In other words, for themselves carries with it this idea, as far as they're concerned individually. As far as they're concerned, right? As far as they're concerned what? As far as they're concerned, 
He is not the Messiah. Are you, are you seeing this? In other words, they experienced Him. They tasted Him. They rubbed shoulders with the Holy Spirit of God Himself. They, they, they were touched by Him. They were fed by Him. They were healed by Him. They were delivered by Him. And yet, they heard the Word and they even saw glimpses into the kingdom that was to come and yet they have still chosen not to accept Him as the Messiah. As far as they're concerned, as far as they're concerned, He is a deceiver. As far as they're concerned, Jesus was a liar. And as far as they're concerned, they have made the same judgment that Herod made. They've made the same judgment that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made. That He is a liar, he is a, he is a fake, He's a phony, and He deserved to be crucified. So as far as they're concerned, they've made the same judgment. And as far as they're concerned, they're crucifying Him to themselves, right? For themselves. And then there's this one... There's this one last phrase. And put Him to an open shame. This is what the Holy Spirit, it's a strong word. Listen to me, it's a strong word. But do you see the love of God in this? This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't God by the Holy Spirit trying to beat somebody up. This is God by the Holy Spirit, last ditch effort, trying to reach people before they become of all men most miserable, right? Having been alive on planet earth with Jesus, having experienced His ministry, tasted of, of, of the heavenly gift and still missed out and wound up in hell. Remember, he came to his own, but his own received him not. That's what John said. Here's this final and last word that he says, and put him to an open shame. What is he saying there? He's saying that not only have you done the same thing that the religious establishment did by rejecting the Messiah, you have judged for yourself and you've decided that He's not who He says He is and that He deserved the death that the, that the Romans inflicted upon Him. But He says, and you've put Him to an open shame. In other words, you've left Him hanging on that cross. You ever heard that expression, don't leave me hanging? Right? What, what are we saying? It's like somebody's told you, look, why don't we, why don't we do lunch today, right? And then, you know, it's supposed to be there at 1 and, and 1.30 comes, 1.45 comes. They're leaving you in a lurch. In other words, they're being indecisive. They, they, they haven't followed up or whatever like that. So, so in other words, he's saying, you, you're, you're indecisiveness. See, they may say, well, you know, we're still trying to decide what we think about Jesus. Well, the jury's still out. No, 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 the jury's not out. He's saying, the jury is not out. You, you've already condemned Jesus. As far as you're concerned, you've crucified Him personally because you've declared Him to not be who He says He is. But here is the sad thing about it, my friend. At least the Romans had the decency to take His dead, naked body off a cross and bury it. You've left Him hanging. You've left Him hanging. You've put Him to an open shame. Verse 7. He then says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes um, upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Seems like Jesus talked about the word falling on different soil and those different soils rep representing the different attitudes 
and, and, and preparedness in men's and women's hearts and, and, and how all of that you know, parable, the parable of parables uh, played out. You see elements of it here. Let me give you one last verse and we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Let's go back now. Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. The word came. The water from the word came. The Holy Spirit. All of those things, right? And we see that some, right, received that word with gladness and, and, and accepted Jesus for who He is. And He were born again and He revolutionized their lives. But others heard that same message. They did not mix faith with it. And instead of being saved, they were lost. And notice He's saying that um, it's rejected. Remember, the Bible says, the Bible says, he who has the Son has life. He who has, does not have the Son does not have life. It's rejected, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Amen. Praise God. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Thank you for the things that you're showing us and revealing to us. I know, Father, that um, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've covered it rather quickly, but I thank you, Lord, that um, your word and your truth is what sets us free. And I pray tonight, Father, that, that men and women would not just brush this aside as another uh, live stream service, but, Father, they would consider uh, carefully, Lord, what you're saying and what these verses really mean. And, Father, that the enemy would no longer be able to use your words against your children to cause us to question our salvation and the question, um, the, uh, the, your promise uh, to never leave us or forsake us, to never walk away from us, but to be with us always. Never to question your promise that you would uh, be faithful to finish the work that you started um, in each one of our lives. And so, Lord, we love you. We know that your word even says that you're faithful to us even when we're not faithful to you. Thank you for that. Father, may our understanding of these things motivate us, as your word says, to purify our lives, even as Christ is pure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, good night to you and your beautiful family and friends. I appreciate you joining with us. We'll be in person together uh, this Sunday. Remember, our youth barbecue sales not too late. We'd like to get some barbecue for the 4th of July. Um, a lot happening around here today. We're changing out our soundboard and upgrading some things there it's been a long time coming we're so thankful for the goodness of God and for uh, John Mark and Matthew and Marcos and Daniel and, and, and just the help that we've had today getting that done and so um, we are excited pray for us amen that's it's it's been quite an undertaking um, I don't know how many thousand wires I'm just kidding probably hundred wires anyway uh, to sort through and figure out but um, we got some good men uh, that know these things working on that so we love you, be blessed, and as always, good things coming.